experience, you know, that's not, that's not it. He wants the whole life. And then as we yield it to him, we get to see what he can do with it. Lord, what can you do with my life as I give you every part, you know? And, uh, and I think that the trap that we fall into is that we kind of um, uh, compartmentalize the different areas of our life and we'll give him certain things, um, but there's certain things that either we think he doesn't want or he's not interested in, or I don't know if I can let this go, or I don't know if this is a part uh, of my life that I'm holding it, or if this is a part of my life that it's holding me, and, I, and it's just he, he wants nothing to do with it. And we kind of have all these different parts of us, uh, and he wants it all, and he can do something with it all. And he really can't do anything until he has it all. And so um, our purpose over these next weeks and, and months and however long the Lord leads us in this uh, way is to look at all the various areas of our life and what does it mean to really surrender those things to him and to be a disciple uh, as it pertains to those things, our relationships, our business, our attitudes, our ethics, our recreation, you know, uh, our struggles, our sin, all the, you know, um, our wrestlings, the things that we fight with, you know, so... Um, that's where we're going. And so uh, last week we talked about the privilege, really, of uh, answering the call. Um, today I want to look at the, the, um, the beginning of the path or the following of the king. You know, we saw him call them. Jesus called them and he said, follow me. Um, but then what does that mean? Okay, so I'm following him. I agree. I lay down the nets. I, 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 I put down my armor and I say, okay, Lord, I'm going to follow you. Uh, what does that mean? And so look at Matthew chapter 11 and let's read from verse 25 through the end of the chapter. And then we'll be looking at some verses uh, kind of around this section uh, here. So Matthew 11:25 it says, at that time, Jesus answered and uh, there was no question, by the way. Uh, <laughs> he just answers because there's a question that we have, will have uh, in the context leading up to this uh, that he anticipates. He knows that we're going to have a question, um, and so he answers it uh, before we ask. And that's why it says that Jesus answered, even though there's no question that, that's leading up. You'll notice if you have a red letter Bible, uh, that almost everything in the preceding verses, even all the way back as far as chapter 10, uh, is all red letters. They didn't have a chance to answer a question. And I don't know if you know anybody like that, <laughs> that, that answers a question that you didn't ask, um, because they've been going on for a while, you know, and, but I'm thankful that Jesus does that. Uh, because if he can anticipate the question that I have and then answer it before I ask it, then that means he knows me uh, well enough to know what's in my heart. So it says that he answered and he said, I thank you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hid these things from the wise and the prudent and you've revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight, for all things are delivered unto me from my Father, and no man knows the Son but the Father, neither knows any man the Father except the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. And then uh, the, the pinnacle, the climax of the entire passage, uh, verses that are very familiar and very famous, Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And so uh, it tells us there at the beginning of our section that it says that it was at that time. And so uh, what that does is it immediately sets the context for us uh, through which all of what Jesus is about to say uh, fits into. And um, anytime that you want to really understand what something means or how it applies, uh, it's essential that you understand why it's there in the first place or how it fits into the entirety of the narrative. And so what time was it that Jesus speaks these things? And, And so we understand that these statements in this passage come at the end of a long section that all goes together. And that section begins back in chapter 9, verse 35. So if you just flip back to chapter 9 of Matthew's gospel, verse 35, that's where the beginning of this whole entire segment of Matthew's gospel uh, is. And then it concludes with the verses that we love in chapter 11, uh, where it says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, uh, and I will give you rest. And so uh, at the beginning there, back in chapter 9, verse 35, that takes place at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it, we're not going to read every verse between here and the end of chapter 11, but look at Matthew 9, 35, uh, so that we understand why Jesus says these things. It says that Jesus went about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, that is that as he went from from village to village and town to town, now starting his earthly ministry and heralding the arrival of the kingdom or the message of the kingdom, It says that as he saw these multitudes, it says he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted. And so um, we're told, first of all, what Jesus went forth to do. He went forth to preach. So he goes forth to preach the good news of the kingdom. We're also then told what he found. So the message was the gospel, but what he found were multitudes of people that it describes as them that fainted, it says in verse 36, so they're weary, they're fainting. It also tells us back up in verse 35 that they were sick, that they needed healing, that they were diseased. And then it also says there at the end of verse 36, that not only that they had fainted, but it says that they were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. So what he found as he came to give good news as he found that everywhere he went, humanity was plagued with weariness, sickness, disease, and that they were scattered about as sheep having no shepherd, that their lives were in disorder and disarray. And so everywhere that Jesus went, that was his assessment of what he found. And then finally, what we see, what that did in him is that it created a motivation It tells us there in verse 36, it says that when he saw those multitudes, it says he was moved with compassion. And so that discovery created in Jesus a motive, an action, a drive. And it says that it was uh, birthed from compassion. So it wasn't anger. He didn't look at the state of humanity and say, look at what they have done. I give them one earth, a perfect world. 
and it is completely clean. There is nothing wrong with it. I go away for 4,000 minutes, 4,000 years, and I come back, and this is what, this is what you've done? This is what you have to show for it? <laughs> you know? No, he's not frustrated. He's not angry. He's not grieved. He's not upset. He's moved. And he has compassion. In other words, he's able to empathize with the condition. He understands the cause of that condition. And he's hurt by it. He's not indifferent to it. And so he sees the condition and he's moved with compassion. And so he then utters words. Verse 37, it says, Then said he, and listen, the, the heart or the mouth speaks from the abundance of what's in the heart. And so we know what's in his heart. He's moved with compassion. And so that compassion drives him to say that the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into the harvest. Now, you recall at the beginning of our study that the passage in, in chapter 11, it says that Jesus answered, right? He answered a question that was never asked. And the question begins right here. Uh, and, and, and for me, the, the first part of that question is, okay, Lord, why do you need an army? If you have an issue and there's an issue that needs addressing, and you're God, then why do you need an army, laborers, to come into the harvest in order to address that issue? Why isn't it sufficient for you to just show yourself to be God, prove your deity and your magnitude and your power, flick a few light switches, say a few words, everybody just reforms their ways and we set things right? You know, why is it that as you, as God, look at this whole situation, you say, okay, the solution is going to take more than what I'm going to be able to produce in my presence here right now. I need laborers in the harvest. Well, that's the beginning of the question. It doesn't give an answer right away. But as we move through what takes place in chapters 10 and 11, we begin to understand the plight, the reason, and the solution. And so what in the world is going on here? What does Jesus do? What is the action that results from his compassion? It says in verse 1 of chapter 10, and again, don't worry, we're not going to go through every verse of all this, but notice. It says that when he called unto him his 12 disciples, he gave them power against or over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sicknesses and all manner of disease. And then it gives the names of them in verses 2 through 4. And it says in verse 5, it says, These twelve Jesus sent forth and he commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles or into the city of the Samaritans, enter not, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, now here's the instruction. He says, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the message is very simple and very short. The message is, preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you've received, freely give. All right, so that's, that's really the encapsulation or the summation of what he sent them forth to do. Now, here's the amazing and remarkable thing that begins to unlock some insight is that for the rest of chapter 10, and you can go through and you can pick it apart and read it on your own. 
the rest of chapter 10 is all protocol and warnings. That's it. Protocol and warnings. In other words, when you go into a village, this is how you're to behave and what you're supposed to do. He doesn't, no more detail on the message. He doesn't tell him, how do we preach a sermon? How do we heal a sickness? He doesn't give him any of that. He just says, look, don't take money from anybody. Stay above reproach. Don't pollute the message with bad behavior. He spends just a couple of verses saying that. And then the rest of it is, okay, guys, sit down. I want to explain something to you. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be killed. This is going to cost you every last thing that is dear and precious to you. And for you to receive this call and take up this mission, you have to settle it in your mind right now that you're going to lose everything. This could cost you your marriage. It could cost you your kids. This is going to cost you your physical health and well-being. In fact, Jesus is going to kind of summarize the whole thing by saying, if you're not willing to take up your cross, this ain't going to fly. (laughs) And here's the whole reason why, is because you're going to bring a message that is the solution to the plight of all of humanity, and by and large, that message is going to be resisted, opposed, and rejected. And you say, whoa, wait a minute. So the condition of humanity is weary, sick, diseased, scattered, lost. You have the solution wherein they can be found, healed, secured, blessed, and led. And they're not going to listen to that message. They're not going to receive and respond to the one thing that is the solution. You begin to understand why Jesus answered, right, at the end of the passage, why Jesus had to answer a question that was never verbally asked. Wait, why would someone reject the message that is the solution to every need that they have? In chapter 11, if you flip over to chapter 11, chapter 11, leading up to the verses that we read, really give to us three snapshots Three different events or interactions or uh, even just sermons that illustrate an event or an action. And what those three things do is they answer a question of why. Why don't people come to Jesus that are weary and heavy laden, that are diseased and sick and scattered? Why don't they come to Jesus and receive from him the thing that they need when they know already that their condition is really bad. And the three snapshots that we see in chapter 11 answer the question why people won't come to Jesus. The first one is in the first just couple of verses there, and it has to do with John the Baptist. Notice what it says in chapter 11, verse 1. It says that it came to pass that when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now, when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, so John the Baptist is in prison because he was serving Christ. John is in prison because he was faithful to deliver the message that was given to him from heaven to convey to humanity. John was in prison because he had the boldness and the courage 
to tell a king and his wife that he had stolen from his brother that what they were doing was wrong and that the way they were living wasn't pleasing to God and that they were in rebellion to God. And John was in prison for doing God's will. And so from prison, it says he sent two of his disciples to Jesus. So two of John's disciples now come to Jesus. And they said to him, are you he that should come or do we look for another? In other words, are you actually the promised Messiah and the Christ or is it not you and it's someone else that we should be looking for? Or, or to say it another way, John the Baptist sends messengers to ask Jesus, is my help going to come from you or should I look for help somewhere else? In other words, you're not fulfilling my expectation of what I thought you were going to do when you came. And so are you the one that I should trust and follow or should I put my trust and my allegiance somewhere else? That was the question that these disciples came to ask Jesus. And notice the answer that Jesus gives, verse 4. It says that Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. So you tell John the things that you're seeing in my presence. Listen, the blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. Now, this is an amazing answer that Jesus gives to John. Because Jesus is speaking to John in secret Jewish code. Now, I know that sounds mysterious when I say that, but it's actually quite simple. He's speaking in scripture. John is a prophet. John knows the scripture. I shared with you last time we were together that that's how the rabbis would communicate. They would talk to each other. They would talk verses back and forth and communicate in scripture. And essentially, that's what Jesus is doing to John here. He is quoting Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, which is a messianic prophecy about what Christ would do when he comes. It says in Isaiah, let me read it to you. Isaiah chapter 61, it says, that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek or to the poor. And he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, that is to heal, and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Now that's a prophecy of what the Messiah would do when he comes. Jesus in Luke chapter four, don't turn there, but when Jesus first started his ministry, in the first moment he walked into a synagogue, it tells us that he opened a scroll and he found the place in Isaiah where it is written that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to heal the sick, open the eyes of the blind, set the prisoners free, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Then Jesus closed the scroll put it down and said, listen, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your sight. Now follow me. 
John's question was, are you the Christ or should we look for another? And John's, Jesus' response was, go tell John what you see, that the eyes are opened, the sick are healed, the gospel is preached unto the poor. But what doesn't Jesus say in Matthew when he sends the messengers back to John? He does not say that the prisoners are set free. He leaves that out. He says everything but the thing that John needed in that moment. See, John was in prison and John needed to be set free. But that wasn't Jesus' will. It wasn't God's will for John in his ministry for him to be set free from prison. So Jesus not only leaves that out, but notice what Jesus says in verse 6 back in Matthew chapter 11. Watch this. It says, And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. That means stumbled, scandalized, disillusioned. And by the way, this is the first reason why people don't come to Jesus even though they have the need to. is because of disillusionment. That is, God doesn't do in their life the things that they think he should do or that they want him to do or he doesn't do things the way they want him to do things in their life and therefore they say, well, if he's not going to do what I want him to do, then I'm going to look for help in another. Are you he that should come or do I look for another? You're not doing the thing that I thought you were going to do. Listen, guys, sometimes expectations don't materialize. I don't know if you've ever found that in your life. <laughs> Sometimes I have a script in my mind of how a certain thing is going to go down. And I expect that because I'm right with God and in a relationship with God or because I'm following Christ, that God is going to purchase my script and he's going to sit in the director's chair and he's going to orchestrate flawlessly and beyond what I could produce in myself, a screenplay that exceeds my expectations, better than I could ask or think. And what I have found, and I think probably what you have found too, is that God doesn't even open the envelope when we mail him <laughs> our script of how we think things should go. Oftentimes we find in the quietness of our own mind, we find ourselves saying, well, I thought... Those are bad words to start any sentence with, you know, that I thought that my 18-year-old was really going to take my advice <laughs> and go down, go down the path that I had prepared for them from the foundation of their life and, and walk in the ways that I had raised them in. And, and not make the decisions that they're making and treat me the way that they're treating me. And I had this expectation that that was the way, and it's not going that way. Jesus, why isn't it going that way? Sometimes, in my mind, I had a script or an expectation of what marriage was going to look like, of what a relationship with a significant other was going to look like, about what it would really mean that the two become one flesh and, you know, that there's, there's a unity and a, and, and a relationship and a linking and a seeing eye to eye. And I thought it was going to always be like what it's like on vacation. <laughs> Every day of the life of our marriage. 
Sometimes we have an expectation that when we come to Jesus Christ, things are going to happen a certain way or things are going to turn around a certain way in our life. And very seldom do our expectations match the reality of what God has planned. And what happens to a lot of people is that they will follow Jesus for a day or two, or they'll entertain some of the things that he has to say, or they'll look at him as a potential solution to what they think the problem actually is. But when things don't then go according to their expectations, they then say the message and say, well, are you he that should come or do I look for another? And I know there's something that's all too familiar to all too many of us. He doesn't care how we think things should go. He will do better for us than we can do for ourselves. But it won't be in the way that we think. And it's not going to look like the way that we think. I was sitting with a young man this week who's kind of in one of these things right now where he basically came to me and said, is he, is Jesus him that should come or should I look for another? And in the course of our conversation, I shared with him an experience that I had um, probably about eight, nine years ago now, where I was on the roof of the AMC movie theater right near Times Square, right next to the Wax Museum on 42nd Avenue in New York City. And I was up on that roof, and I was kneeling in uh, people's urine, um, putting in uh, metal flashing on the edge of a roof. And, uh, and I was extremely miserable, to say the least, in that season of my life and in, in the things that I was in. And, uh, and as I was there, the devil was right there. And the devil was uh, very clearly um, putting a very clear picture up on the screen of what my life uh, looked like at that point in time. And he was very clever to also at the same time split the screen and show me on the other side my expectation of where I thought my life should be at that time. And they were worlds apart what I expected and what I thought I had been uh, praying towards and moving towards and what I had been promised versus what I was actually experiencing. And I found in my own life this uh, question in my own heart of saying, Lord, are you he that should come or should I look for another? Is it worth it to follow you? Can you really do better for me than I can do for myself? Because I think I might be able to just do a little bit better than this for me. Or if I had done things a little bit differently, maybe things would be for me a little bit better than they are right now. And I, and I was in such a frustration and in such a bad spirit at that time and had such a bad attitude uh, towards the things of God that I remember pacing on that gravel roof there and actually, uh, I don't know if I mouthed the words, whispered the words or shouted the words, but I, I, I at least thought the words, uh, Lord, if you were here right now in front of me physically, I would fight you even though I can't win. And then I got angry that I couldn't win. because you can't beat God, right? Like, how do you, you can't fight God and win. It's, it's, that's impossible, you know. It goes without saying. He didn't show up and he didn't fight me, nor did he send his Holy Spirit and the light from heaven and encourage me, nor did the dove come down and say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, you know. I finished out my day, I went home and I did it again the next day and the next day, but... For comfort, and um, because I had nowhere else to go, I, I was listening the the Bible on my earbuds. I had it in, and, and I was going through at that time just straight through, so I don't choose him where I was, and I was in the book of Job of all places, you know. And I was listening as I was working. I was listening to Job complain about the situation that he was in, and I heard in that things that I'd probably read before but never picked up. But Job said these words and somewhere in Job, somewhere in the 20s or 30s. Job said, God, essentially, if you were here right now, I'd fight you. But then he said, 
Then he said, I can't win if I do. Can a man fight God and win? And he, and as I heard those words, I kind of stopped and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> and what it was like for me in that moment, it was like looking, it was like being like, let's say you're like lost in, in, in the Adirondacks, like lost in the woods. You're lost and you feel like, I don't know how I got here. This, no one's ever been here before. I'm going to get eaten by a bear any minute. And this is like this vulnerable feeling of complete lostness. And, and, and then in that spot where you are in the thicket, you look down and you see a footprint in the ground. It says Job in it. And you realize that you are right where thousands of other people have been before. And, and though you feel as lost as you possibly can be, you're right in the very center of where God has you, wants you to be, going where he's taking you. And if you and I think that God is going to fulfill our script of how things should go in bringing us to where he knows we will be blessed the most, then we'll check out. And even John the Baptist a man whom Jesus is about to say is the greatest of all the prophets, found himself in a season of his life where things didn't look like for him what he thought they should look like, and God wasn't doing what he thought God should do, and he was stumbled by it. And Jesus' response is, blessed or happy are those who aren't stumbled when things don't look like what they think they should look like, and yet they still trust me. Because he's not going to do things the way that we think. He knows what we need. He's not concerned with what we want. He is concerned with what we want. But he's not concerned with giving us what we want if we're going to wreck it or sabotage it or ruin it or have it stolen from us because the process wasn't completed. And so people are reluctant to the solution of Christ because they're disillusioned about the way and the process in which he does things. He doesn't fulfill our script. Well, Jesus goes on in the chapter to talk more about John the Baptist. And then he comes to the second picture, the second thing, the second reason why people don't receive. Notice in verse uh, 12. It says that from, Jesus said, from the days of John the Baptist until now. Now, Jesus is preaching. He's talking to those in, in his audience. He says, from the days of John until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. That is, and a better translation would be, is that the kingdom faces violent opposition. When it says that the violent take it by force, that is, it suffers violent opposition. Or, to say it another way, is that people oppose the kingdom. From the days of John, people have been opposing the kingdom. They're opposing the solution. They're opposing blessing. They're opposing freedom. They're opposing healing. They're opposing stability in their life. Violently opposing it. Why? Jesus goes on to say, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you receive it, listen, this is Elijah which was for to come. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. But 
Whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the markets, calling to their fellows and saying, We have piped to you, but you have not danced. We've mourned to you, and you have not lamented. For John came, neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. Now, 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 now knit it together. What is Jesus saying here? The kingdom is opposed... People resist it, okay, violently, and here's why. Here's the second reason why. It's because of stubbornness. So not just disillusionment, but stubbornness. Jesus says that John the Baptist is Elijah, that this is Elijah that would come. Now, that's a great clue to understand what was going on in the days of John culturally. Why did Elijah come? What was going on when Elijah came? When Elijah came, the people had a form of religious experience that was joined with pagan idolatry, and they thought they were okay, but their religion was doing nothing for them. Remember when Elijah came, and all the people were mixing this Jehovah Baal worship thing going on? And, and, and it says that the altar of the Lord was torn down and everybody had their religious form and they, they were religious and they were disciplined and, and they were faithful. But Elijah said, what good is your religion doing you? Elijah said, tell you what, you go build an altar and I'll go build an altar and you go get yourself an offering and I'll go get myself an offering. And then you pray and you ask your God to come and burn up and consume and answer your prayer. And then I'm going to pray to the living God and I'm going to ask him to come down and burn up and consume his offering. And we'll see whose God can answer a prayer, whose God can do something in a life. And so they said, yeah, right on, let's do it. <laughs> there's 450 of us. There's only one of you. We've got to be right. And so all day long, they dance, they cut themselves, they cry out, they scream, they sing. Nothing happens. No answer. Their religion does nothing for them. And then Elijah says, okay, my turn. Go get some water. 12 buckets. Dump 12 buckets of water on that bull. Do it again. Four times. Fire and water don't mix, do they? And then Elijah prays a 10-second prayer. He says, oh, Lord God, that they might know that I'm your prophet and that I've done these things according to your word and that you're God in heaven. He says those words. Boom! Fire comes down from heaven. It consumes the bull. It burns up the altar and it licks up all the water and dries it up. It's just this parched pile of smoke. Elijah says, essentially to them, there is a God in heaven that can meet the need that your religious devotion, your patterns, your discipline, you're faithful to read the Bible and pray every day, but really not trusting God in the process is doing nothing for you, but there's a God that can answer by fire. Now, you would think that 450 prophets of Baal at this point would go, yeah, you're right. Wow. Maybe we need to make some adjustments in the way that we're thinking. Maybe we should inquire a little bit more about how, how exactly did you pray in Jesus' name? You know, like, wow, that was... You would think that they would say, all right, point made, point well made, but they don't. They violently resist Elijah. 
And Elijah takes on 450 prophets that then try to kill him, and Elijah kills all of them. They all die, 450 prophets. Then Jezebel, who's the driving force behind this intermixing of religion and paganism, she catches word of it, and her word to Elijah is, I'm going to kill you by this time tomorrow. What is all that? You know what that is? That's stubborn resistance to obvious assistance. <laughs> Listen, God, answer, help, you know, what you're doing ain't working. And now here comes Jesus on the scene, and he looks at a bunch of religious Pharisees who had a form of religious outwardness. They were so faithful in their church attendance. They looked so good on the outside, but on the inside, they were something altogether different. And Jesus looks at them and says, you are tired. You are sick. You're diseased. You're disorganized. Your life is disjointed. Your religion isn't working for you. I have the answer. And they say, get out of my sight, you know. They're violently opposing what Jesus has to give to them because of their stubbornness. They're unresponsive. Jesus says, John came to you. He was a Puritan. He was always fasting. He had candles. You know, <laughs> he came neither eating or drinking. And you said, oh, he's got a demon. I come to you. I'm a modernist. I eat. I listen to Coldplay. You know, I, I wear jeans from the gap. You know, uh, I, I'm more modern. I'm, I can, I, I'm relatable to you. And you say to me that I'm a friend of sinners. I'm a gluttonous man. I'm a winebird. He goes, listen, you're just stubborn. God's right in your presence and you can't even recognize it. But then Jesus finishes it this way. I love it. It's one of my favorite verses at the end of that little segment there at verse uh, 19. Last sentence. It says, but wisdom is justified by her children. In other words, the children of the wisdom are going to reveal whether or not that's good or bad wisdom. Just like in real life, right? You know, the, 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 the demeanor of a child many times, I won't qualify that a little bit, <laughs> reveals the quality of the parents, right? Wisdom is justified by her children. In other words, the kind of wisdom that you live by is going to look like something in your life. And your life is going to be good if you're following good wisdom and things are going to go good. And your life is going to be bad and look bad if you're following bad wisdom. And what Jesus is saying to these guys is, look, you keep going in your stubborn resistance and your life is going to continue to be what it is today. Keep doing what you're doing and you're going to keep getting what you're getting. But there's a solution if you want it. But the stubborn resist by force. What's the third reason, third picture, third reason people resist? Verse 20 through 24. Notice it says that Jesus then began to upbraid the cities, rebuke the cities, wherein the most of his mighty works were done. Listen to why. It says because they repented not. They didn't turn from their ways. And he said, woe unto you, Chorazin, woe unto you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, listen, they would have, listen, repented, there's that word again, repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, which are exalted to heaven, you shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. But I say unto you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. The third reason why people resist 
why they will not receive the solution to the thing that they most desperately need is because they don't want to repent of their sin. So not just disillusionment, God's not doing what I want, and not just stubbornness, I'm going to do things the way I want to do things, you know, but now they don't want to repent. That is that the thing, the very thing in my life that is killing me and I know it, I'm not willing to be free of it in order that I might live. There's an amazing passage in Exodus when Moses was talking to Pharaoh. Remember, let my people go, you know. And one of the plagues that God brought upon Egypt when Pharaoh refused was the plague of the frogs. Remember? Pharaoh said, I'm not letting them go. And Moses said, all right, have it your way. He waved the staff and all of a sudden frogs just infused the entire land. They were everywhere. They were in the water bottles. You know, know, they were everywhere. You know, there was just frogs. And so finally Pharaoh says, get in here. And he says, get rid of the frogs. And Moses, this is the thing that blows my mind. Moses asks the question. He says, when do you want me to ask God to get rid of the frogs? And you know what Pharaoh says? Tomorrow. (laughs) What? (laughs) One more night with the frogs, please. I've almost had it with these things, you know. But I want one more night with the frogs. And I'm amazed at how many times we laugh at that, but isn't that us? There's something in our life that's in our life, and, and it's a plague in our life. And, and, and it used to just be something that was by the pond. You know, we'd walk in a certain place, and we'd hear, ploop, 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 ploop. you know, all the frogs just jumping in, and they were, you know, around. And there was just, frogs were, you know, frogs were what hop across the road at night when it's wet out, and you, you know, you run them over, you know. The, this is just an occasional frog in my life. It's no big deal. You know, it just shows up at certain times. But then we persist with the frogs and the frogs begin to multiply and we find that the frogs begin to spread into other areas of our life that maybe we never intended. Oh, I'm thinking about the frogs while I'm at work. I didn't used to think about the frogs while I was at work. Now I might want to hang out with the frogs after work, you know, and, <laughs> and then the frogs grow and then you're at work and you find you look in your pocket and there's a frog in your pocket, you know. And all of a sudden, you come to a point where you thought, well, I never thought the frogs would get to this point. You know, I, I mean, somehow we've got to control the population of the frogs somewhat. You know, maybe we can find some meetings that we can go to, or we can uh, find some helpful tips in a book or on the Internet that will help us to uh, kind of eradicate some of the frog population and pull it back a little bit. But when we find that those things only work temporarily and that frogs reproduce faster than our ability to eradicate frogs, they get to a point where we say, I'm fed up with the frogs. I need the frogs out of my life. I want the frogs gone. And we think, well, maybe God can help me with the frogs. And God asks the question, he says, well, when do you want me to take the frogs out of your life? And when it comes down to the moment of decision and the line in the sand, how many of us say, tomorrow? Tomorrow. I'm sick, I'm weary, I'm diseased, disorganized. My life isn't what it's supposed to be. Maybe tomorrow. 
sin. Now do you understand why there was a question that Jesus had to answer in verse 25? (laughs) Jesus had answered. He just answered the question. Lord, you've come into the world as the great ambassador of heaven. The kingdom of perfection represented in the kingdom of darkness. And what you have found here is you have found a race of humanity, a generation that is sick, diseased, weary, scattered, and lost. And you need an army. You need laborers in the harvest in order to make a difference in this world when you have the answer to a very obvious and evident need that everyone has? Yes. Because people are disillusioned. They're not willing to embrace the process. People are stubborn. No, I want my way to work. I want my religion, my discipline, my self-confidence, my plan, discovery, the collective experience of my 30 years of wrestling with this. I want those things to work, my stubbornness. Or sometimes I just refuse to repent. I hate the frogs, but I don't know if I want them out of my life. Or maybe I'm afraid and I think they can't be out of my life. And if I even try Jesus and it doesn't work, what will I do then? But nevertheless, it keeps me from repenting of the thing that is killing me. And then Jesus gives the answer. You want to be free? You want to be whole? He says, come to me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, you're weary. You're laboring. You're fighting. You're searching. You're grasping. He says, I will give you rest. And then he says in verse 29, take my yoke. Now, he gives three commands here. First is come. Second is take. The third is learn. He's going to give us those three things in these short sentences. The coming is an act of my will and decision. I say, okay. I say, I recognize, I believe. I'll follow. I'll get on the path. That was last time, you know. Come, follow me. The second part, he says, take my yoke upon you. Now, in order to take the yoke that Jesus gives, it means two things. It means first I have to be freed from the yoke that is currently on me. See, it isn't that we come without a yoke and he says, okay, well, let me give you one because who would take that deal? <laughs> you, know? hey, you ever seen an ox in the field that's going like, hey, you got a yoke you could throw on my back? You know, <laughs> Nobody's looking for a yoke. But if you see an ox in the field and it's got a yoke and that yoke is connected to a chariot that is connected to 40,000 tons of some substance that that manure is dying and languishing under the load of trying to carry and sustain. And then someone comes and says, hey, I've got a completely different yoke and a completely different load, if you're interested. The first thing that's going to have to happen, though, is that that yoke is going to have to be broken off, right? Again, in the book of Isaiah, I just want to read you a verse. I love it. It's beautiful. It's a promise. It's hopeful. It's Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. 
And it says that the people that walked in darkness have seen great light. And they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before you according to the joy in harvest. And as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Why? Verse 4. For you have broken the yoke of his burden. And the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. You see, the first thing that Jesus does when we choose to follow him is he wants to break the yoke of oppression that's off of us. But we have to be willing to let that yoke go. Because we can't wear two yokes. It's one or the other. And if we're going to take his yoke, then we first have to allow him to free us of our yoke. And sometimes that answers the question of why the process isn't happening the way I expected that it would. Because sometimes in the process of freeing us from the yoke that we've been carrying our whole lifetime, God has to take us through some pretty dark valleys and some deep waters and some really hard experiences in order that those chains might be broken and that he might free us from that oppressiveness and bondage. And a lot of people quit. Sometimes he does it in different ways. It's different for all of us depending on what he has or what we need. But when he sets us free from a yoke, he doesn't take it off so that we can put it back on again. It says that he broke off the yoke of their oppression. He didn't remove it. He broke it. And sometimes we can remove the yoke, but it's not broken. And so that yoke can then be taken up again by us, and we find ourselves captivated again by the thing that used to hold us. But when Jesus sets us free, it's freedom indeed. What did Jesus say? You'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. <coughs> See, nice. Then he puts his yoke on us. After breaking off the old, he puts on his. And it says that his burden is easy and his load is light. It comes as we learn of him, as we walk with him. And the amazing thing about a yoke is that if a yoke is the fitting yoke for the animal that it's on, it allows the animal to carry a whole lot more than it would otherwise naturally be able to, and it feels effortless to it. And so what happens is that as Jesus fits us with the yoke he has for us, it's, we find that it's the yoke that we're made for. And so he leads us then into the path of what we were created for, and we find ourselves doing amazingly large things, but they feel incredibly easy because of the things that we've been made for. You know, there was a couple of days in my carpentry career that I had to work exclusively on my knees for an eight-hour day because of the quarters that I was working in. And what I learned is that knees are not intended for walking. <laughs> they do a real good job bending and crouching and running and all that. Great. They're amazing invention. They don't walk well for long periods of time. And what happens to us a lot in our lives is that we find that what we're doing is extremely difficult because we're doing something that we weren't intended to do. We're in knee and we're being used to walk. God knows what you are because what he made you to be. And so when he puts his yoke on you, you're doing what he made you to do and thus you're able to do amazing things and it doesn't feel like it's all that much effort. My knees were so impressed with my feet after that day. How do you do that much? Do you get it? And in the process of setting us free, he also enlists us 
in the army of then going forth and bringing this freedom to others. And listen, here's where we close. Because people are disillusioned to the processes of God, because they're stubborn in their own ways, and because they're reluctant to repent of their sins, it takes more than someone speaking over a loudspeaker and just simply saying, hey, the kingdom of God has come. It takes time. It takes time when someone's stubborn. It takes time when someone's steeped in sin and they're trapped and they're burdened and, and, and carrying the load of it. It takes time when someone's disillusioned and they don't understand because they're suffering and what, what is God doing and is this he that should come? Or, it takes time. And what people need to see, listen, what they need to see is the example of a life that is living under the right wisdom and therefore the fruit of that life is evident and someone can watch it from afar and then up close and say, I want what you've got. And that's what Jesus is producing and wanting to produce in us as he sets us free and brings us close to him. It becomes a living example for other people that are sick, weary, diseased, oppressed, disordered to look in and say, all right, I'm willing. Whatever the process, whatever it means I have to confess it didn't work, whatever I have to repent of, I want what you've got. And here's the goal of Jesus and of this class, this time, is that we become so much more than just an audience that listens to messages, that sits in church, that wears the form, 450 prophets worth, singing around, dancing, cutting themselves, putting in all kinds of effort, but to no avail, that we wouldn't be an audience, but that we would become an army. Laborers that have been yoked properly, that have been set free sufficiently, and that are a living example moment by moment because it's our life of what he's called us to be and do. And then in that, he uses us to bring others in also.